Good morning, my name is Noah Joyner, and I have the privilege of serving on staff here at North Wake. I've actually I've been around North Wake for about 20 years, the only church that I've ever been at, and it has been a joy. And, and, and this is a strange moment. I've, I've preached here many times, but never like this. Uh, so all you guys, uh, folks out there at home, glad to be with you. If you're visiting with us, I'm so glad that you could uh, visit with us virtually. And, and I do hope and pray that uh, when all this, uh, all this gets back to normal, you, you'll be able to come and, and hang out with us. And so... Uh, uh, when you are um, learning to speak publicly, you come up with all sorts of ways to kind of deal with the jitters of, of uh, being in front of a group of people. And, uh, you know, sometimes you're told to imagine uh, the group of people that you're speaking to uh, with, with no clothing on. I'm not doing that this morning. I'm just imagining that you're all here uh, right now. So uh, I'm imagining you here. Glad to have you with us. And so... Uh, I'm excited to, to speak to you this morning, uh, excited to get into the book of Mark with you this morning. And so um, most people don't get an opportunity to meet their heroes, uh, but I did. Um, uh, it, it was the dead of winter of uh, 1997. It was December the 10th. It was actually my birthday. And uh, I had traveled up to uh, Charleston, West Virginia, to see a band uh, that I, I was a big fan of, uh, a band called uh, the Dave Matthews Band, actually my favorite band at the time. Uh, for some of you youngsters out there, they were kind of a big deal. They, uh, about 20 million in ticket sales, about 35 million albums sold, probably one of the top 10 live acts in the last 20 years, so kind of a big deal. Uh, and so uh, I'd seen them about 30 times over a four-year period, and so needless to say, I was a, I was a fan uh, and so as a 19-year-old, me and some of my buddies, we jump in a car and uh, we drive up there. My oldest brother was with us. And so we get there a little bit early and uh, we decide, hey, let's go to the venue and see if the band is there. And so we get there and lo and behold, they're there and they're kind of hanging out outside. And we kind of start talking with them and got some autographs. And uh, a couple of the guys were like, hey, you want backstage passes? And we were like, yeah, of course. And so uh, we get these backstage passes. And, you know, when the, when the concert starts, we're able to like go backstage and watch the whole concert from the side of the stage. There's like 30,000 people there. And we're like the only people on the stage watching from the side. And it was absolutely fantastic. Just the, the ability to see what they were doing, the way they were speaking to each other, the way they were communicating, uh, just to see the talent uh, of all of it up close was, it was just exhilarating. And so uh, after the show, we hung out around uh, backstage and, and Dave Matthews shows up. And so I get to meet him and, and, and we're kind of talking, but I, I realized as I was talking with him, he was kind of distracted, uh, not really all there. And it, and it was kind of a letdown. And so uh, as a 19-year-old, as a uh, that was really striking to me. And I, I remember that evening, um, driving home. We actually slept in the car that night. We were poor. Uh, slept in the car that evening. It was super cold. And I remember thinking, um, what a letdown. If, if this is the most uh, exhilarating moment that I can, can find as a, as a young man, I got the thing I wanted, right? Uh, if this is all that there is, um, this can't satisfy and I remember just really, really being struck by that, really being let down by that. Um, I, I actually met uh, Dave Matthews again on a second occasion. Same experience. It was just a big letdown. I put all my uh, desires and passions and hopes and uh, satisfaction in this thing that couldn't please me. And so uh, I was face-to-face -face, uh, with kind of the hopelessness of, of uh, putting my uh, cares there. And, and I was laid flat on my back. If I couldn't find joy from that experience, where could I find it? I want to contrast that. Um, 
I want to contrast that with another hero that I met. In 1999, I read a book that would change my life forever. Uh, It was short, the characters were a bit odd, and I had never read anything like it. And the main character was so compelling. He was gentle, but not weak, strong, but not domineering, wise, but not proud. I'd never met anyone like him. I couldn't get over the way that he treated his friends and his enemies. When I slept, I would have dreams about him. I'd heard of him, but clearly all that I had thought about him was false. You see, I met Jesus in the book of Mark, and he knocked me flat on my back. I had to do something about him. And over the next year of my life, the wheels fell off. I was sick. All my relationships imploded. The drugs weren't cutting it. I was lonely. And I called out to God to help me. And he said, Noah, if you want to come to me, you have to come to me through my son. Y'all, I was a pagan, hippie stoner who had read a little bit of Bible and God spoke to me. He gave me a vision of himself with his son seated on his right hand and he pointed to him and said, you have to do something about him. So three months later, standing in my bathroom, I committed my life to Jesus. I said, take this life and do whatever you want to with it. I'm yours. And since Thanksgiving Day of 2000, I've continued to read the stories about Jesus in the scriptures. And I'm still flat on my back. By God's grace, I've never gotten over Jesus. I still haven't met anyone as surprising and satisfying as he is. So as we begin the book of Mark, I want to encourage you to try and see Jesus with fresh eyes. I want to ask you to forget all the fake photos and and false images and misconceptions of the subcultural understandings of Jesus and take him as Mark presents him. Let him jump off the pages. Let him be the character that matters most. And ask yourself anew, who is Jesus? Be willing to be surprised by what you see and hear. Ask God to uncover him. Ask God to uncover his son to you so that you can see him clearly and worship him afresh. As we get started this morning, I thought one of the most helpful things we could do is look at a short video, uh, a short summary of the book of Mark. I think it'll help us jump into this idea of who is Jesus. And so the folks over at the Bible Project have put this Bible together or this video together. Their stuff is always helpful. I hope that you're helped by it. It's, I found it to be very helpful. So let's watch it together and then we'll jump back into the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a book in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And the earliest reliable tradition tells us that it was written by a guy named John Mark. Now, Mark didn't just grab a bunch of random stories about Jesus and throw them together. He's designed this book to address some really specific questions about whether or not Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So let's stop right there because that's a term a lot of people like me aren't very familiar with. Yeah, so the Messiah was a royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God, that Israel was expecting to come and set up a kingdom here on earth. And around the time of Jesus, Israel was occupied by Rome, and so many Jews were hoping that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Romans and rule as king. But Jesus didn't overthrow the Romans. In fact, he was killed by them. 
And that brings us to the very issues Mark is trying to get at in this book. So in the first half, he focuses on who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And then in the second half, he's addressing how Jesus became the Messianic King. And then right here in the middle of the book is this pivotal story that brings the two halves together and Jesus answers both of these questions. Okay, so let's talk about the first half of the book, who Jesus is. So Mark makes his beliefs about Jesus very clear from the first line of the book. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. One of the next stories is Jesus getting baptized and God's voice announces from heaven, this is my son. So it couldn't be more clear, it's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, but as you're reading through this first half of Mark, you'll notice something really interesting start to happen. Jesus is going about healing all these different people and he's constantly telling them to keep quiet about who he is. This happens so many times in Mark's account, it's very strange. Yeah, why keep it a secret? So remember, lots of Jews had lots of different expectations about what the Messiah would be and do. And so Jesus doesn't want people to misunderstand what it means for him to be Israel's Messiah. And so with all that in mind, we come now to the pivotal story at the center of the book where Jesus takes his disciples away and he asks them, who do you all say that I am? And Peter says what everyone's been saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. But then something new happens because Jesus starts explaining to them how he's going to become the Messianic King and it is not what they expected. He says he's going to suffer and die and rule by becoming a servant or in his words, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to become a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter is startled by this and he rebukes Jesus because there's no way he's gonna let Jesus die. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, which is really intense. It really is, but it highlights how important it is for Jesus that his disciples come to understand who he really is. And so here now in this pivotal section, Jesus tries three different times to have this conversation with them and every time they respond in confusion and even fear. Okay, so this launches us into the second half of the book where Mark addresses the question of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He goes to Jerusalem, gets in conflict with the religious leaders, and gets arrested. And he's put on trial as someone who's claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's even given a crown and a purple robe like a king would get, but it is all a cruel joke. Then he's mocked and beaten and hung up on a cross where he dies. And it's here in this crucial scene that we meet a new character. A Roman soldier. Who suddenly gets everything that's going on. He says, surely this is the son of God. Which is crazy. It's an enemy who's first putting it all together that Israel's messianic king is the crucified Jesus. That's the structure of the book of Mark. But the book doesn't end with Jesus dead on the cross. No, so on the third day, some women go to visit Jesus' tomb, only to find that it's empty. And then there's this angel standing there, instructing them to go and tell this good news that Jesus is alive from the dead. But instead, they run away and they don't tell anyone because they're afraid, and that's how the book ends. Which is a really abrupt ending. Yeah, it's so abrupt that later scribes did add an ending that brings more closure to the story. And you'll find that story in your Bible with a little footnote that says it was added much later. 
But Mark's a brilliant storyteller, and he's intentionally ended this book abruptly. So all through the book, the disciples have been confused about Jesus' plan to give up his life, the story in the middle and now right here at the end. It's like Mark is acknowledging just how startling this claim really is. And he wants you, the reader, to wrestle with it for yourself. Is this crucified Jesus really the Messiah that they've been waiting for? I always find uh, the Bible Project to be helpful if you're ever looking for resources on uh, different books of the Bible or different themes or ideas. Uh, their stuff is really, really helpful. So uh, go over and check them out. So out of the gate, there's some things to know about the, uh, Mark's gospel. It's, it's very fast-paced. Uh, the book, it uses the word immediately about 35 times, nine times in the first chapter. And so it goes for immediately from one thing to the next. Uh, it's a short 16 chapters intended to be read in one sitting with only a few teaching sections. I actually listened to it this week. I think it took me less than two hours. I was kind of doing some things around the house and uh, did a little bit of driving, and I was able to listen to the whole book uh, fairly easily. So I'd encourage you to do that uh, as you're uh, looking for things to invest your time in. That'd be a worthy investment, listening to the whole book of Mark from beginning to end. Uh, you can use your uh, free uh, Dwell app to do that. Uh, much of what Mark wants to say, uh, he does it through other people. So he, he wants to say these things about Jesus, and he uses other people to do that. And the major question that Mark wants to meet head on is, who is Jesus? And he does that by using this host of characters. And so things that you're going to hear uh, through the book of Mark about Jesus, you're going to hear things like this. He's God's beloved son. He is pleasing to God. He is the holy one of God. He has great spiritual authority. He does all things well. But you're also going to hear things like this. He's crazy. He has a demon. Other people are going to say he's a prophet. Some people are going to say he's Elijah. Some people are going to say he's the Christ or the Messiah. And so Mark puts the reader in a position to have to reckon with who is Jesus. Who do you say that he is? And we actually see this as the book comes to a close, much like was referenced before in the video. We see in Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 39, it says this, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So the last he is statement in the book is from a man who was complicit in Jesus' crucifixion. And he concedes and upholds the point of Mark's writing. Jesus was the son of God. And this is exactly the idea that opens the book of Mark. He is God's son. So read with me in the opening verses of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It reads like this, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of, the, of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So right away in, uh, in Mark, we have two things we need to give attention to, um, and they show up as footnotes in many modern translations. Uh, in the English Standard Version, which is what I was reading here, you might see a small number one beside the phrase Son of God in verse one. And then in verse two, a small number two beside the phrase Isaiah the prophet. 
uh, a little digging will uncover that it's possible that the words son of God were added after Mark originally wrote his gospel. So it might be helpful to imagine these words in brackets as a true statement that was tacked on for emphasis. As we'll see later in the chapter and the book as a whole, Jesus is often referred to as the Son of God. So he's not ma- nothing's being made up there. It's just being added for emphasis most likely. And then in verse 2, it's possible that the mention of Isaiah was added later also, possibly for clarification about which prophet in the Old Testament some of the words that would come after uh, this, and this may have been because Mark's gospel was popular with those who were not familiar with Old Testament writing. So he's kind of tipping them off and saying, hey, here's where these, uh, this verse comes from. So we might read it like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is written in the prophets. So with that understanding, let's get into the meat of what Mark wants to say. So if we look closely at verses 2 and 3 where he quotes from the prophets, he does it by mashing up a couple of different verses. So he's going to take a part of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, a part of Isaiah 40 verse 3, and he's going to put them together. So Malachi 3 verse 1 says this, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of his covenant in whom he in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that's the Malachi part. So he's going to take the beginning part, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And he's going to put it together with Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which says, a voice cries or a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so he takes two parts and puts them together. So it's like when you're listening to one song and then a DJ mixes in another one and you're like, dang, I never heard that connection before. It's really similar to how Daniel and the worship team actually did some years ago when they wrote this song, Christ Our Savior. They took an older song that everyone would kind of know and then put it together with new lyrics that anticipated the same thing. Can you do that for us, Daniel? It's always Christmas in Daniel's mind. Uh, I've, so the amazing thing about that song is it takes something and runs it in the background. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. All this anticipation. And then it laces all this beautiful anticipating language on top of it to give unity and strength to the idea that Christ is coming. He has come. God has kept his promise. And I believe that's exactly what Mark is doing when he puts these verses together. I've never said this publicly, but Daniel, that probably is my very, very favorite Christian song ever from any time ever. So 
thank you, thank you, thank you for you guys writing that. Thanks for doing that uh, here. Uh, and, and it encourages me. It encourages me. And it makes me think backwards and it makes me think forwards. And that's exactly what Mark is, is doing here. He's braiding these verses together to, to show the unity of how the prophets, minor and major, how they anticipated Christ. Much like the way that a rope of multiple strands is braided together. It's weaved together to make it stronger than a single strand. And he's going to, to use this braided together verses from the Old Testament to introduce the first series of characters in the book and to connect them with all that God had promised beforehand. If we look closely, we'll see three characters that emerge from the, the quote mashup that we talked about in verse two and three, verses two and three. So we'll see this. We'll see this, this uh, character that says, I, uh, I send my messenger. So there's a sender uh, who's sending a messenger. And so we have the, the messenger and he's going to prepare the way. He's the one who's crying out. And then you've got this character where he says, I send my messenger before, before your face. And, and he, that character is understood to be the Lord. If you, you look in, uh, back in uh, Isaiah, you'll see that it uses the language of Lord or Yahweh, the, the one true God, the God of Israel. And so we see these characters emerging as we look closely into these uh, two verses. And so Mark tells us through the words of the prophets that God himself was going to send a messenger who would set things up for the one who would come after and Mark is completely comfortable identifying him, the one who is to come, as the Lord of all, Yahweh, the one who led Israel out of Egypt. Now, with those things in mind, let's read verses 4 to 8. Keep those three characters in your mind as you read this. Verses 4 to 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we're shown our first two characters here. Firstly, we see John, who we call John the Baptist. Mark notes that John is wearing camel hair clothes and a belt. And, and, and the reason he does this is he wants to make the connection. So this uniform closely connects John with the prophet Elijah who much of Israel believed very strongly would come prepare the way for the Messiah. He would come first, this Elijah character, and then the Messiah would come after. We see that in uh, Malachi chapter 4, uh, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, these are the very last words of the Old Testament in our Bibles. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so God says, look, I'm gonna send to you this Elijah character and he's gonna get everything ready. He's gonna set everything up before the great day of the Lord comes, before the Lord himself comes. 
And so he's, he's baptizing. John the Baptist is out there baptizing in his, his, his you know, camel clothes and leather belt. And he's in the wilderness and he's calling people to, to turn around and be forgiven of their sins. The fact that John is doing all that in the wilderness, it makes this strong connection again to Moses. He's leading the people in the wilderness. And he's, they're having to pass through the Jordan to enter into God's promises for them. And so John is this character that's a lot like Elijah and a lot like Moses. Don't forget, John is the first prophet that Israel's had in 500 years. God sent messengers to his people consistently for thousands of years and then nothing. That's over 15 generations with no updates on what God is doing in the world. No new words from the Lord for 15 generations, 500 years. For us, that would be like silence from God since the time of Martin Luther. So understandably, all the people are going out to where he is at the Jordan, being baptized and confessing their sins. There's a prophet in Israel, and they're going out to where he is. God is showing up, and the people are going out to see what is going on. So John's our first character. Let's look at the second character. The one who will come after, or the mightier one. As the 1990s dawned, uh, MC Hammer boldly proclaimed, y'all can't touch this. As to say he was so dope, right? So this is a, a 90s phrase for really good, that no one could lay a finger on him. Y'all can't touch this. John's saying the exact opposite as he compares himself to the one who comes after. He's saying, I can't even get close to his greatness. I'm unworthy to even untie his sandals. Don't forget the status that John holds here. Everyone is going to him. He's a mega prophet. This would be like Michael Jordan saying about another baller that he was not worthy to wash his jersey. This, this would be like Tiger Woods saying that, that he was unworthy to cut the grass another golfer played on. This would be like Hillary Clinton saying that she could not iron the pantsuit of another candidate. In short, John the Baptist is saying that there's another one who is coming that is so significant that I'm not even a good point of reference, of comparison. He's in a completely separate category. He puts an exclamation point on this idea. So, so listen to this. He, he says, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's making this lesser to greater argument to differentiate his ministry from the one who is to come. It's as if he's saying, I've used the most basic of physical elements to point you to God, but he will utilize the Spirit of God himself to fully immerse you into the life of God. He's saying, I've gotten you wet, but he will make you holy. This idea of a, a greater prophet who was to come after Moses, it's, it's not a new idea. If we look in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19, we see this. The Lord your God, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord, 
your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So a little background here. Moses is leading the people in the wilderness. They go to the mountain where God is going to give the commands and meet with the people. And, and, and God says, tell the people to come up on the mountain. And the mountain is thick with smoke and there's lightning. And it's, it seems really, really dangerous and scary. And the people say, no, no, no. Moses, you go up for us. You go up and you talk to God. We are fearful. And Moses says, okay. And he goes up and he speaks with God. And so the people miss out on this opportunity to meet face to face with God because they are afraid. But God says, I'm going to send another prophet after Moses that's better than Moses. And that the words of God, God's very words will be in his mouth. He will speak for God. This is what it means when John says that there's one who's greater who's coming after me, this is the, the one promised by God long ago that all the prophets are pointing to, that the words of God will be in his mouth. God himself will step on the scene and he will speak. So thus far, we've identified two of our three characters, John, and the one who comes after, or the mightier one. But we don't know who this mightier one is yet. We don't know his name. So let's look at verses 9 to 11 and see what's, see what's going to happen next. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, "'You are my beloved Son.'" And with you, I am well pleased. So here we find out what the name of the second character is. His name is Jesus, and he's from Nazareth. A couple of things to note here. The name Jesus is pretty common in both Old and, and New Testaments, much like the name Rob would be for us. And Nazareth was, Nazareth was considered to be a rough part of town. Think Flint, Michigan. So Mark presents Jesus as a nobody from a community of ill repute, Rob from Flint. So Rob from Flint shows up seemingly out of nowhere, very similar to how John simply appears back in verse four. This is different than the other gospels. The other gospels explain in detail, where is it that Jesus came from? Where is it that John came from? But Mark doesn't do that. He begins very quickly. And these guys just kind of show up, Jesus and John. Notice what's missing in John's baptism. All the other folks come out to John, they're baptized, and they confess their sins. But for Jesus, there is no confession of sin. In fact, we see a different type of confession. It's not a confession from him, but one pronounced over him. So after Jesus goes under the water in baptism, he comes up from the water, and immediately three things happen. And, and I'll work backwards uh, uh, from, from the last to the, to the first here as I note those. 
One, a voice from heaven confesses deep love for this nobody from nowhere. This voice, presumably from God himself, identifies who Jesus really is. The deeply loved son of God who brings great pleasure to the father. And and our last two characters are are fully revealed here. We, We see Jesus the son, God the father. So we've got these three characters all together. John the messenger who prepares the way for the one who is to come. God the Father, the one who sent John to make a straight path for the Lord. Jesus the Son of God, the Lord of all, loved by his Father, deeply pleasing in all ways. We also see this physical representation of God's Spirit. It falls on Jesus, acting as an additional witness to what is said about him. And so the presence of the Spirit on Jesus acts as a seal of authenticity of his sonship. And it explains where all his power is derived from. It's derived from God himself. You're going to see later in the book that Jesus has all this power to cast out demons and heal people. And people are coming along and saying, no, no, the reason he has that power is because he's filled with demons. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. You've got it all wrong. My power is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we, we see this central character in the book of Mark introduced here, the Holy Spirit who is upon Christ, putting the seal of approval and authenticity and power on Jesus. On top of these, it says that the heavens were torn open. And here we should conclude something really interesting. I want you to notice something. The only other thing in the book of Mark that's torn is back in chapter 15, verse 38, where the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. We mentioned it earlier. In this passage, Jesus has just died, and when he dies, the curtain of the Jewish temple that separates God's space from man's space is torn in two from top to bottom. And this represents how Jesus' death gives man full access to God. It is proof that his death and resurrection make a way for man to be reunited with God. Likewise, that is baptism. The heavens begin to tear open, giving humanity a glimpse inside. Because when we see Jesus the Son, we have seen the Father in heaven. And that glimpse of God in heaven is intended to draw us further up and further into the life of God. It's intended to make us say, like the Roman soldier, this man Jesus surely is God's son. Jesus' baptism is altogether different than any before or any after. It's where the Father and the Spirit rip the cover off of the Son for all to see who he truly is. He has been veiled from time past, but no longer. He is on full display for all to see. Baptism in the church, as we understand it here at North Wake, has some striking similarities uh, to Jesus' baptism. Just like Jesus' baptism didn't make Jesus God's son, our baptism, our baptism doesn't make us a child of God. It comes only by faith. And we express that reality in public through baptism. It's the way we raise the banner of identification as a member of God's family. It reveals for all to see what God has already done in the secret places of our hearts. It's how we say, Daddy, I'm so glad to be home. It's a simple way to help those near us speak 
or to look into how God has torn heaven open and said, come on in. When we go under the water, we're saying, I was dead because of sin, and I've died with Christ. And we are raised from the waters of baptism. We're saying, I've been raised to new life, just like Christ did when he was raised from the dead. I've been raised with him. My life is his life, and his life is my life, and and I will live all my days for his purposes. When I was 18 years old, I saw my brother Matt baptized. And then again, when I was 19 years old, I saw my mother baptized. God used that so powerfully in my life to say, heaven is open to people like you, Noah. So if you can hear my words, I want you to know, heaven is open for people like you, people like us. Jesus has made a way through his death and resurrection. And we're we're getting to peek into that. The gateway to heaven being ripped open, as it were, in Jesus' baptism. Mark is beginning to, to slowly draw a line in the sand. And it will become more distinct as the book progresses. On one side of the line are those who say, yes, he is the son of God, just like the father in heaven says, On the other side of the line are those who say, he's crazy, he has a demon, he can't be trusted, he's a myth. Through the book, the latter voice will become so strong that those voices will ultimately kill Jesus. But they will not have the final word. And the question that we're faced with is, where do you stand? Where do I stand? Who do you say Jesus is? And you will be faced with this question over and over again through the pages of Mark's gospel. How will you respond? How will you respond? Verses 12 to 13 offer us an eerie scene. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus, him, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So Jesus, still wet from baptism, is driven into the wilderness, a place of wandering and loneliness and temptation. And in two short verses, we see a a striking portrait of Jesus. Though he is truly the Son of God, he's also fully the Son of Man. He's both divine and human. He's tempted by evil as we are, and, and, and he is in need of God's help as we are. He really is human in every way it means to be human. And the wedding of these two truths mean great things for us, brothers and sisters. As we close, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Think about this with me. Since then... The writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus took care of business in heaven in a way that we couldn't. And he faced temptation on earth in a way we haven't. He never sinned. 
He can sympathize with our weaknesses and our temptations, but he can also give us grace, the grace that we need because he is God on the throne. And so Jesus is saying, I get you and I've got you. I understand you and I'm able to keep you. I've been there before and and I will get you through. I will not forget you and I will bring you home. Hold fast to me. We're living in a weird time in history, but Jesus has seen worse. He has met all evil has to offer head on and he stands victorious. Our friends and our neighbors need to hear the good news that Jesus has to offer. The good news that he says, I get you and I got you. I am the Lord of all things and a friend of sinners. I'm over it all and still near you. Mark has begun explaining the good news of Jesus by, pres- by presenting an impressive list of witnesses to tell us who he is. The prophets say he is the promised one, the Lord of heaven. John says that he is beyond comparison to any other. The father says he is my beloved and he pleases me. The spirit seals him with the approval and power of God. And one thing I forgot to mention is the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus means Salvation. And so Mark is subtly screaming, salvation is here. Salvation has come. So, who will you say he is? Who will you tell of his greatness today?